All right, so uh, today um, we're continuing our, our, our series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, there's really no good transition, so we're just going to read the passage, and, uh, and we're going to dig in, okay? Uh, here's the passage. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, or if you're a woman, man, or lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What a pleasant passage. What a pleasant, pleasant passage. It's going to be fun this morning. Um, Actually, this morning was really hard. Hard for two reasons. Number one, it was hard because... There are a handful of sermons and what Scripture has to say that I could anticipate some resistance. This, I'm anticipating lots of resistance. Not because necessarily you don't agree, but either because you're confused and don't know, or frankly, you know how sometimes, has this happened to anybody? You believe something with all of your heart, and then over years you found yourself kind of compromising and living in a way that, you didn't ever think you would. And sometimes it's easier sort of to justify. So when somebody says something, you go, no, 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 no. And if I would ask you, well, why do you disagree? It may not be, well, this is because of what I believe about Scripture, but I'm not living it, and I don't like somebody telling me that I'm not living it. And this is one of those Sundays. Because we're going to talk about the issue of sex, sexual desire, sexual passions, lust versus love, and all of the above. Um, it, it seems like on the surface what Jesus is saying is that if you have sexual passions or sexual desire, you're going to hell. That's not what he is saying. A lot of times people read passages like this, and particularly non-Christians, kind of assume or come to conclusion that Christians have a very negative view of sex or sexuality, you know, that Christians kind of are prudish and so on and so forth. You read the Bible, it couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible actually in, incredibly celebrates godly, God-ordained sex as a wonderful, beautiful thing. Genesis 2, here's how the Bible opens. Genesis 2, Adam, Adam sees Eve coming and he breaks out in poem. This bone of my bones and flesh of my, he's singing a love song, a rapturous love song over Eve and they're both naked. That's how the Bible opens up. Then there are passages like this in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her. That's in the Bible. You know, sometimes people go, you're not one of those fundamentalists that like takes the Bible literally, do you? I go, well, sometimes that helps. Um, <laughs> You're already, somebody's sitting there going, he's talking about this in church? And I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about in church in a moment. Have you ever read the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon? Good Lord. You can't tell from the English Bible because the English translators completely chicken out. <laughs> when, you actually, when you actually read what it says in Hebrew, 
I mean, it's, 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 it's downright sort of like, <gasps> okay? The Bible celebrates, absolutely celebrates uh, the glories of sexual love in the context that God ordained. I mean, it's barefaced, exuberant about it. There's, there's nothing sort of prudish about what Scripture has to say. And I'm going to talk, by the way, this is a two-parter sort of uh, this week and next week. So when Jesus talks about hell and sex, listen, he's talking about the dignity of sex. He's talking about the importance of sex. He's talking about the critical, essential. He's literally saying you misuse sex and it does incredible damage, not just to you, but to that relationship. He is trying to get you and me to be serious about this issue. Because let's be frank, in our context, in our culture, the word casual sex is thrown around as an understood term that we just casual sex. There's nothing casual about sex is Jesus' point. Now, this morning afterwards, 9 o'clock, this is, I just feel this enormous burden because I know for a fact that in a congregation like ours, there are those of us who've misused the gift of sex or sexuality. And it has done some of us incredible damage and harm. It's not just damage and harm, not just to our souls, but also to relationships. This is serious business. Uh, the context is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. And what Jesus has said throughout the ser- throughout sermon, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, is that when the rule and reign of God invades into your life, it changes everything about you. The hands of the king are healing hands. And so the rightful king be known. Everything. When the ruler reign of God enters your life, he heals everything and everyone. And, and, and Jesus says, you become radically different. You become unfashionable. You become countercultural. You become counterintuitive. You become what the watching world looks at and goes, how, how do you live like that? How are you like that? And Jesus says, that's the kind of difference that begins to invade our lives when we decide to follow Jesus as king, as Lord, and his kingdom rule and reign enters our lives. It changes everything about us. And incredibly enough, in Matthew 5, before he gets to anything else, he goes directly to the issue of sex, sexuality. Jesus is not messing around here. It's almost like he's peering into 2013 and he's going, I know the kind of pressure that followers of Christ will have in terms of living their lives is radically different when it comes to the issue of sex than the watching culture around them. And sure enough, I can't think of anything more important and more critical in a congregation like ours, whether you're single or married, than to understand what Jesus is to say about the issue of sex and the issue of lust. This is profound implications. It is going to be a little bit more uncomfortable this morning because, as you know, you should be used to it by now, I am very blunt. So I will kind of speak bluntly. Because this is one of those things, you can't dance around the issue. You can't dance around the issue. So we're going to go right to it. Is that okay? The context is this. context is, so far, Jesus has addressed the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments where he talked about adultery and the context of relationships. And he says, adultery is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, murder. He says the sixth commandment is the prohibition of murder. And he says, you're not just committing murder when you physically destroy someone's life. He says, my kingdom people, my kingdom people have a much higher standard. He says, you're committing murder when you're angry and bitter against somebody. You're, You're committing murder when you say words that hurt and destroy someone's reputation. You're committing murder when you're indifferent. Jesus raised the bar of what murder is. Now he comes to the seventh commandment. He goes, adultery. 
And he's literally saying, you live in a time which the rabbis are saying, here's what adultery is. As long as you don't sleep with someone who's not your wife, you're okay. And Jesus comes along and says, you have absolutely no idea what that commandment means. You have no idea what that commandment means. And that's what we're going to look at today. So he says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. First thing you need to know. Jesus is accepting the Old Testament sex ethic. In other words, Jesus is affirming what the Bible has to say about the sex ethic. He's not discarding it. He's not saying that's not important. And what is the Old Testament biblical sex ethic? Here it is. You ready? Very simple. No sex outside of a covenant. No sex outside of a covenant. Well, where do you see that, Peter? Thou shall not commit adultery. The word adultery literally meant sex outside the covenant. That is, more technically, it was sex with somebody who was not your wife, the someone that you were in a covenant relationship with. But check this out. What Jesus is saying is a much broader principle. He's saying God's ethic for sex is not just sex outside the covenant. It's also sex without a covenant. If you do not have a covenant with somebody, whether you're married or not, God says, my design for sex. Sex outside the covenant with somebody you're not married to. Sex without a covenant, someone you're not committed to in the context of a marriage. I'm going to get to that. Bible says, no sex. Now, I, I get interesting questions. Asked. People go, Peter, there's no sex in marriage. Where do you find marriage? In the, well, that's because in the English Bible, you don't find the word marriage except a couple times. But what you do find throughout the Bible is the word what? Covenant. That's what marriage is, a covenant. When Jesus says, Jesus says the biblical sex ethic can happen only with a context, in a marriage covenant, a marriage commitment, and nowhere else. The Bible is saying, the Bible, let me show you a passage. Let me show you a passage. Genesis 2.24. This is Old Testament sex ethic that Jesus is talking about. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the word cleave there is this is a marriage. Why? Because the word cleave literally means to make a covenant. Cleave. To make a covenant. To make a public confession of an exclusive, permanent commitment to somebody to share your entire life. Covenant. Here's a definition put it up there. A covenant is a relationship where you're making a public promise to permanently, exclusively, and legally commit to share your entire life with someone else. And the Bible says you don't have sex unless you're willing to do that. By the way, I was in there going, boy, that, who wants to do that? That sounds so boring. Who wants to do that? Exclusive, <gasps> permanent, Legal. Who wants to? If you think like that, even the slightest bit, the Bible says you you don't have the slightest idea of how personal relationships work. You don't have the faintest clue about the kind of nurturing, deep, intimate, listen, the most satisfying relationship that you could have. The Bible literally says the most satisfying, the most fulfilling, the most powerfully enabling, the most transformative relationship you could have with anybody is one in which you are exclusively, permanently, and legally committed to them. And you're sitting there going, I don't think so, man. Let me show you why the Bible is so true when it comes to that. 
Um, there's a book called Divine Commodity. It's written by a guy named Sky Jathani. I encourage you guys to read it. Sky Jathani, he breaks down this reality that you and I live in a consumeristic culture. Would you agree with that? That we live in a consumeristic culture. And a consumeristic culture is here to have. You have a consumer, that's you and me, and you have a vendor. And what a vendor does is they have products that they want to sell. And you and I as consumers, we go ahead and we consume the products they want to sell. But here's how consumeristic relationships work. Consumer says, I have a number of vendors that I could choose from. And I'm going to go with the one that, frankly, meets my needs the best. So if this vendor over here meets my needs the best, I'm going to go with you. So, for example, this phone carrier actually is much better than that phone carrier. I like AT&T, but I heard T-Mobile has an unbelievable, unbelievable package. So I'm going to go with that vendor. Or my phone doesn't quite do it. I heard this other phone came out. It's, a much, it's got bells and whistles, all this other stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and choose that vendor. In a consumeristic relationship, you're always looking for an upgrade. In a consumeristic culture, you're always looking for an upgrade. You're always going, who meets my needs the best? Who meets my needs the best? Who can satisfy me the most? Who gives me the biggest bang, bang for the buck? Buck for the bang? Bang for the buck. Who gives me the biggest bang for the buck? In a consumeristic culture, you're constantly looking for an upgrade because you're always going, I can do better. I can do better. I can do better. I can do better. And a covenant relationship could not be more different than a consumeristic relationship. In a consumer relationship, you're always going, you adjust to me. You adjust to my preferences. You adjust to my needs. And if you don't meet my needs, I'm going to go find somebody else. In a covenant relationship, you go, I adjust to you. My commitment to you is greater than my commitment to my needs. My commitment to you and my promises to commit to you is more important than anything else. So therefore, my needs, my preferences, what I want is secondary. My commitment to you, my commitment to this relationship is the overriding supreme desire. Let me ask you something. Relationships in our culture today, is it covenant or is it consumer? Say it with me. It's what? It's consumer. And the Bible says, if you would enter into a covenant relationship, three things will happen. Three things. So this isn't the Bible going, be in a covenant relationship. Why? Because I told you so. No, it's wise. It's truth. Three things happen. If you're not. Lauren Robinson, you were here for the 9 o'clock. You're here back again? Are you taking good notes for your Bible, Bible small group? Okay. By the way, the temptation this morning, well, this is not for Lauren. The temptation this morning will be for some of you to go, she needs to hear this. Uh-huh. He needs to hear that. Uh-huh. No, you need to hear it. Amen? I need to hear. Three things that happen in a covenant relationship. Number one, in a covenant relationship, you finally have a zone of security, a zone of safety to be yourself. In a consumer relationship, you're constantly what? Marketing, selling, constantly going, does my hair look okay? Is my dress okay? In a consumer relationship, how do I appear? How do I smell? How do I? You're constantly trying to impress, constantly trying to sell, constantly trying to market. Why? Because in a consumer relationship where there's no safety, if that person goes, you're not longer meeting my needs, I'm out. So you're constantly selling. You're constantly insecure. you never be yourself. you never be yourself. Last week, I met with a young couple. They dated for two, three years, broke up, then got engaged again. And I was talking to the guy. And the guy goes, Pastor Peter, I can't tell you how miserable I was when we broke up. I said, why? He goes, you see my receding hairline? I go, yes. He goes, well, I'd be out at clubs and stuff, and I'd be so insecure because I'd be checking out these girls. And I'm like, my hair, is it okay? Am I? 
He said, I was terrified of how I looked. I was terrified. Why? Because I'm trying to impress. I'm trying to market. I'm trying to. And then he said, be with my fiance. There's security. There's rest. I could be vulnerable. I could be myself. Why? Because you're committed. And he goes, I could. My foibles, my faults, all my weaknesses. If you're in a relationship with somebody, dating, and that person makes you insecure, you need to get the heck out. If you're in a relationship where you feel like you're constantly having to impress, 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 how do I look, how do I look? If you're in a relationship like that where the man or the woman doesn't make you feel secure, run as fast as you can in the other direction. Amen? I'm telling you, that relationship is exploitative. It's consumeristic. And eventually, the person that's covenanting, if you're in a relationship where you're covenanting and they're consumeristic, the covenanting person will always get hurt, will always get hurt, will always get hurt. Secondly, in a covenant relationship, when you have committed a person, in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings grow. If you're in a committed relationship, in spite of feelings, deeper feelings grow. Deeper feelings grow. You know what the other covenant relationship is in the Bible besides husband and wife? Parent and children. Parent and child. Can I tell you something? If you're a parent, your children never adjust to you. Never. Never. They never, they, they could care less about your needs. That relationship will never be reciprocated. Never. Never. I will always adjust to them. I will always give to them. I will always, always lay down my life for them. It will never change. But here's the thing. As a parent, regardless of how unlovable they are, because you're invested, just being honest, when Noah wakes up at 5.30 in the morning today, he is not very lovable as much as I want to hug him. It's amazing as a parent that even though they're unlovable, even though they do things, deeper, more nurturing love grows because you're invested, because you're committed, because you're saying, I'm not going anywhere. Third, in a covenant relationship, there's freedom. Consumer relationship, you are run by your feelings. If I feel like being in love with you, if I feel like I'm attracted to you, if I feel like we're together, if I feel chemistry, we're good. But as soon as the feelings disappear, we're, can I just, can, let's just think about this. How smart is it to anchor and base your morality on your feelings? How smart is it to base your decisions on your feelings? Seriously, seriously, seriously. Because I don't know about you, but here are the following things that affect my feelings on a day-to-day basis. The weather. My car, quality of the cup of coffee I have, I could go down the list. I could go down the list. If you're in a consumer relationship, you're a slave. You know what you're a slave to? You're a slave to your feelings. You're like a puppet on a string. No, I'm not. I'm indefensible. You're a puppet on a string of what? Your feelings. Can I just say one last thing about feelings? I didn't say this morning. How could you trust your feelings when we know for a fact that when sin entered the world, the fall, one of the things affected was our feelings. So you know what that looks like? Let me tell you what it feels like. You will feel incredibly good about doing something that you have no business doing. Other times, you will feel absolutely miserable doing the absolute right 
correct thing. And you know this. So you can base your entire relationship on your feelings? Peter, what does it have anything to do with sex? It has everything to do with sex. Do you know why? Everybody look up here. This, you, if you miss this, you miss everything. The Bible says that God created sex to be a covenant good, not a consumer good. Bible says that God designed sex not to be a consumer good. Bible says that God didn't design sex to go, you know, I've got some needs. I need you to come and meet my needs. Bible didn't design sex to go, you know, I'm kind of feeling lonely. And when I have sex, I don't feel lonely anymore. So I'm going to, the Bible doesn't say, if I have sex with this person, they make me feel loved and adored. So I'm going to, Bible says that God didn't design sex to be a consumer good. It designed sex to be a covenant good, a covenant good to be used in the context of a committed relationship. Why? Do you know what sex is? Do you know what sex does? Sex is physically saying to somebody, I am in every other way fully committed to you. Sex is the way you and I say, see how I have given myself in every other way? I've given myself socially, economically, legally. I have given my entire life in every other way to you. Sex is a way of saying, just I have done all of these things, I'm going to give myself to you physically. That's what God designed sex to be. And you know what happens in that context? The Bible says, when you use sex in that context, check this out. God gave sex more than anything else, more than any other powerful tool. God gave sex to be that thing where you could deeply entrust yourself to another person. It's vulnerable being naked in front of somebody. It's totally vulnerable. It's scary. And when, you, when you're vulnerable and naked in front of somebody... What are you doing? You're saying to them, I am entrusting myself to you. I am entrusting myself to you. Why? This is a powerful thing. But let, let, me, let me show you another passage. And you so need to get this, you guys. First Corinthians chapter 6 and 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in his body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul is saying to have sex physically and not be one in any other way is an absolute monstrosity. An absolute monstrosity. Why? Because when you have sex with somebody, it's not just physical union. The word flesh in the Bible is not just talking about physical receptacle. The word flesh in the Bible is about person or persons or personhood. And what Paul is saying is literally, when you have sex with somebody, you're not just becoming one with them physically. You're becoming one with them soul, mind, body, heart. Sex was designed for you to, when you physically give yourself to somebody, there is this force in you that says, just as I'm giving you physically, I want to give myself to you economically. I want to give myself to you spiritually. I want to give myself to you psychologically. I want to give myself to you in every other way. And when you do that, the Bible says, listen, sex is like a covenant renewal ceremony. It's like a glue. It's like cement. It strengthens. It builds. It nurtures our ability to fully entrust ourselves to somebody. You go, what's the big deal about trusting of somebody? Here's what I know about every single person in here, whether I know you or not. Every single one of us longs for intimacy. We all long for intimacy. And we say in our church, intimacy is to be fully known and to be fully loved, to be fully known and fully loved, fully accepted without any fear of rejection. But you can never and you will never be intimate with somebody that you don't trust. Which means if you use sex in every other way than God designed, it is literally doing violence to the mechanism that God built in you and me to enable ourselves to deeply entrust ourselves to somebody, which then enables to experience true intimacy. 
you use it any other way, it begins to work backwards. You sex any other way, you'll have a difficult time trusting people. You'll have a difficult time trusting people. You'll really struggle being intimate. Here's gospel according to Cameron Diaz in Vanilla Sky. So they're going, he's going to call Cameron Diaz. I'm going to call Cameron Diaz this morning. Here's what she says. And how many of you have seen Vanilla Sky? Remember that? Some of you are too young for that. Vanilla Sky, one of the, one of the handful of movies that Tom Cruise did that uh, was watchable. Okay, here it is. Cameron Diaz turns to Tom Cruise after their one night stand and says, don't you know that when you sleep with somebody, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Don't you know that when you sleep with somebody, your body's making a promise? What's that promise? Hey, I'm not just giving you my body. I'm giving you my soul. I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you all of my self. I am uh, frankly disappointed the last 20, 20, 25 years that the way that the church or Christians have tried to, and if you grew up in church, you know this, the way we've tried to sort of teach correct biblical ethics about sex to like teenagers was what? Just say no or, you know, I forget what the other, but basically it was instilling fear, you know? Like if you have sex, you get STD and you get pregnant. Who wants to do And fear. And we all know fear and guilt don't work motivating people. Amen? They don't. That's why some of you guys walked away from the church because you're like, guilt and fear, it don't work for me. It doesn't, want, it doesn't motivate me to want to change. So this morning, listen to me. I'm not telling you if you have sex, you're going to go to hell because I don't know. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. I'm not telling you that if you have sex, you're going to get all these things. I'm... It's a higher reasoning. I'm telling you that God designed sex to be that thing where you have it in the correct context and it increases, it enhances, it nurtures your ability to deeply entrust of somebody and experience intimacy and fulfillment relationships that this culture is unaware of. And I want to go, why would you want to settle for something as trite and superficial as casual sex and miss out on deep soul-nurturing thing that God designed? By the way, there's no such thing as casual sex. Whether it's a one-night stand or a committed relationship without marriage, sex is slowly eroding and doing violence to your, your commitment apparatus. So they go, how do you know? I wish I could, I wish I could sit here, play a tape recorder of single men and women that I've talked to. Single men and women I've talked to. And their biggest regret is not they got this. Their biggest regret is, Pastor Peter, do you know what this is doing to me? It's making me incredibly, incredibly fearful of fully trusting myself, my boyfriend, girlfriend, so on. And what is that doing? It's causing this distance and barrier to true intimacy. And some of these folks are like, and I can't really tell, I can't really tell my boyfriend or girlfriend, fiance, that the reason why is because my sexual past and history. Do you know what else this is for? So in preparation for this sermon series, because I'm going to talk about marriage in a couple weeks and others, I read, I read a lot of articles on cohabitation. And I was interested to find, interested to find. The statistics say that two people who are cohabitating, living together before marriage, you know, kind of to figure, you know, try this out. By the way, two-thirds of young adults in our culture go, cohabitation is perfectly good. Everybody should try it. Because, you know, you might, you might, you, you need to know, will that person work, will that person not? You know, try it before. But statistically, and studies have shown, the people who live together before they get married, 
the percentage of them getting divorced is way higher than people who don't. Do you know why? Do you know why? Here's what they found. Surprise, surprise. People, people interviewed and said, because I realized, men and women, my standard for a live-in partner were way lower than my standard for my spouse. My standards for a living partner, what I'm looking for, way lower. So what happens in a consumer relationship? I'll try this out. See if you work. Are you funny enough? Are you romantic enough? We'll see if this works or not. And this one woman interviewing this article said, I felt like I was, I was every day auditioning for him. Every day I'm auditioning for him. Am I good enough for you? 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 And after a while, sex becomes a tool to go, I want to be good enough for you. 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 But what statistics have found is sex before marriage in that relationship in no way prepares you for sex within marriage because they're two totally different things. (sighs) I'm feeling heavy. I'm feeling heavy because I'm looking out. I'm looking at you and I'm feeling heavy. Because in a lot of ways, this seems so counterintuitive to a lot of you. This seems so counterintuitive. Or, some of us, it's because we are sexually sleeping around with people who we're not committed to. Some of us, I know, I know, who, I'm con- I know who I'm pastoring. Some of us are living together. Please hear me. Please hear me. If you're in a consumer relationship in which you're auditioning, you're marketing, you're selling, are we compatible? It no way is preparing you for a covenant of marriage. Don't kid yourself. Don't fool yourself. In no way, in no way is it preparing you for marriage. None whatsoever. That's just point one. Because the second part of this is even tougher. Should I just end right here? Should we just call it a day? Can I, can I talk about, because here's the thing. I'm only going to be able to cover like one-fourth of the second part, and then we're going to come back next time. And I'm going to talk a little bit more actually about, do you know what? I went on the podcast. The last time I preached on sex was seven years ago. And I thought, you're such an idiot. Because I vowed, when I planted this church, I vowed, and you could ask the Lauren Robbins, a bunch of people who've been around, I vowed that the issue of sex and what God had to say about sex was so important, so critical, and frankly, let me ask you, show of hands, how many of you grown up in church heard sermons in church about sex? Three people, four people. This is what's going on, and so how are you being informed? Sorry to scream. How are you being informed? And I am, I'm like, you were contributing to the issue, Peter, seven years. I would spend a month on this because it's so important and so big. And I'm only going to be able to spend like a couple Sundays on this. Sorry. Because the second part, we got to get to the second part. we got to get to the second part, and that is this. Jesus says, not only am I going to talk to you about what you might do with your body that you don't want to do with your whole life, he says, I want to talk to you about your mind and your thinking it's not, in, it's not enough, Jesus says, to just not engage in the physical act of sex outside or without a covenant. Verse 28 says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To which I've heard people go, 
So am I sinning when I see someone and I go, man, she's hot? Or when I look at somebody and go, man, he's hot? Or am I look at somebody and go, hey, he's okay? Am I, am I sinning? I'm like, no, you're not sinning when you look and find somebody attractive. We are made, listen, we are made sexual beings. God says it is incredibly good, glorifying when it's used in the right context. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is two things. Number one, you've got to understand what Jesus says is this. First of all, he uses a particularly interesting word when he says looks at a man or a woman lustfully. The word looks is not the usual word for sexual desire. He uses the word that literally meant idolatry. Are you tracking? So when Jesus says looks at a man or looks at a woman lustfully, he's not talking about some sexual deviant thing, you know, in the dark room by yourself. That's nothing. He's, talk- he's talking about idolatry. And I'll get to that in a little bit. And secondly, the word looks in order to literally in Greek says this. Anyone who looks in order to lust, King James Version, who looketh on a woman to lust. In other words, it's not just a looking. It's a looking that's tied to something. It's a looking that is a motivation. It's a looking that has a hook to it. And what is a hook to it? It's lust. Now, what is lust? Lust in this context throughout the Bible is not some sexual deviant thing. Lust is literally idolatry or inordinate desire for something. Lust. Romans 8, Romans 7, other Galatians. When Paul talks about lust, he's not talking about just a sexual demon. He's talking about inordinate desire, greed. So to see what Jesus is saying here about the danger of sexual desire when lust or idolatry gets a hold of it, I want to give you an illustration of when we think of greed, what we normally think about money. So what happens when you take money that in and of itself is a perfectly good thing and you add a lust dynamic to it, inordinate desire or greed dynamic to it? Three things. Number one, you get selfish. When you're greedy, when you're greedy with money, you get selfish. You use it for you. You don't care about the good good of the human community. It's all for you, what you can get, what you want. There's a selfish, self-centered nature to greed when it comes to money. Secondly, there's an addiction nature to it, an addictive nature to it. You're constantly thinking about money. Constantly, how do I get more? How do I spend more? How do I? There's an addiction nature to it that consumes you. And third, fantasies. Talk to people who are greedy about money. All they do day long, all they, how, how, wait, where can I get it? Where can I invest it? How do I save more for myself? Addiction. Fantasies. Selfish. Addiction. Fantasies. Selfish. Sexual desire. Lust dynamic, addiction, selfish fantasies. Jesus says, when you take sexual desire that God gave as a gift, and idolatry takes hold of it, inordinate desire takes hold of it, the effect of that, what we see in our culture today, the effects of that. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Four things that result. When I look at our culture that has taken sexual desire that God gave, added a lust dynamic to it, inordinate desire dynamic to it, four things. I'm only going to talk about one today. I'm only going to talk about one today. But here are the three things I'm going to talk about next time we come together that happens. One, inordinate desire, inordinate attitude towards sex leads to addiction to pornography and masturbation. When you take sexual desire, you add a lust dynamic to it. One of the results, addiction to pornography. Masturbation. $16 billion industry in America, pornography, $16 billion. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. If they say like 9 out of 10 men statistically 
masturbate on a regular basis or some 30, 40% are addicted to pornography. My guess is as a look at our congregation, this is probably an issue. Not just singles, but married couples. And by the way, I've said this before, if you struggle with sexual purity as a single, it doesn't disappear when you get married. Second thing that happens, again, we'll talk more about this. Idolatrous attitude towards sex leads to a belief that you can't be a whole person and actually live a happy life without sex. Why is it that we have a book like Fifty Shades of Grey that's like read by everybody, it seems like? Why? Again, it's not just about some sexual deviant thing on the side. When you take sexual desire, add a lust dynamic to it, you elevate romance to the status of a god. And third, idolatry attitude towards sex leads to reoccurring fantasy and dream about having a perfect marriage, a perfect family, a perfect children, and a perfect home. Anybody guilty of this? Sometimes I want to go to Christian bookstores and go to certain shelves and just, because Christian bookstores facilitate this. It says if you do X, Y, and Z, you could have the perfect family, you could have the perfect family, you could have perfect marriage. And the Bible says, listen, this is what happens when you add a lust dynamic to sexual desire. People walk around going, my life isn't fulfilling. Why? Because this isn't a perfect marriage. How do you define perfect marriage? My life is fulfilling. Why? This isn't a perfect family. How do you define perfect family? But today, like five minutes and we're done. The other thing that this does when you take idolatry attitude or sex is this. We confuse lust with love. You know, look up here. Here's the difference between lust and love. Ready? Lust wants pleasure. Love wants a person. Lust wants women in general. Love wants a particular woman. Lust is about volume. It's about conquest. It's about how many. Love is about how well you have cherished one person. Singles, lust is having enormous sexual desire and passion for someone you don't even know and someone you have no intention of entrusting yourself to. Lust is having enormous sexual desire for someone that you don't even know and you have no desire entrusting yourself to. Uh, I'm going to end with a series of quotes from C.S. Lewis because he's way smarter than I am and much more profound. Here's what he had to say about lust. It's a very unfortunate thing to talk about a man on the prowl who says he wants a woman. He doesn't. He wants pleasure. He wants a sexual thrill. And a woman is just a necessary piece of apparatus. He doesn't want a person. He wants it. He wants lust. Lust versus love. If you're in a dating relationship, here's what lust looks like. Electrical shock and thrill that eventually dies over time, then boredom, then cynicism, then we're done. Love, some admiration, some attraction at first, but it grows over. Kimmy, are you saying it's an amen? That's love. Did you hear Kimmy? Kimmy, sorry, she's like, I didn't like him at all when we first met him. That's love! (laughs) 
That's love. I'm serious. I'm serious. Lust dynamic. And that's why I'm so grieved because this is what singles like in our church even. Lust is like, oh my gosh, she's so hot. You don't even know her. You don't even know her. Then you get to know her and you go, nah. And then it dies. Love. She's all right, I think. I get to know her. Wow. Yes. Lust. Electrical thrill. Pleasure-oriented. Slowly dies. Love. Admiration, attraction. Person-oriented. Gets stronger over time. Question. Are you in a lusting relationship or a loving relationship? Now, married couple sitting there going, Phew, we left unscathed. Thank goodness. No, 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 no. Some of our marriages, the lust dynamic is destroying our marriages. C.S. Lewis. People get from books the idea that if you marry the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they're not, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and they're entitled to a change. By the way, stop right. this is how I think C.S. Lewis wrote it as he was writing. Then he says, let the thrills go. What is he saying? Let your lust die. Let it die away. Go through that period of death to your lust into the quiet interest and happiness that follow and you will find that you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when your lust has been killed. Christian married couples who are like, we're not in love anymore. I go, that's never the point. But I'm just not feeling it anymore. Well, you know, Hitler was feeling it as he was pushing people into the oven. You're going to gauge your feelings as the absolute basis for your morality? Feelings and what we feel and passions is going to gauge what's right or wrong? Feelings and how I'm feeling today is going to determine 10, 15, 20 years from now? It's mind-boggling to me that we would go, I don't feel like I'm in love anymore, so I'm entitled to a change. Two questions and then we're done. Why do we choose lust over love? Why do we choose lust over love? This is just my wild guess in light of my pastoral experience. I'm just going to pick on the men because, well, I like to pick on myself and us. And I want to keep us to a, a level of accountability. We live in a culture where players or people, men and women, frankly, they can get the guy, get the girl, everybody wants to be around. It's like the epitome of someone, the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the model, if you will. And even if you're not, you sit there going, no, I don't believe that, Peter. You, you and I are brainwashed by the films, by the books, by the media to look at certain people in Hollywood wherever to go, oh, that is the model of. But here's the thing that I've realized. 
Men who are players are frightened little boys. Do you know why? Because I'm convinced that a lot of men would rather play games than actually commit to a woman because they're deathly afraid that if the woman got to know them fully for who they really are, the woman would no longer want to be with them. So, these strong, tough guys will rather play games, keep people at bay, because they're deathly afraid to be fully known. And I've had enough courageous men admit to me that that's the reason why that they've been dating for eight years and will not commit. But as much as I want to go, you idiot, I understand. C.S. Lewis again. He says it's the reason because deep down inside all of us know inherently that love is risky. That love is risky. That if you love anything and anyone, you are basically putting yourself up to have your heart broken and broken bad. Love anything, C.S. Lewis says, an animal person, and you are literally putting yourself in a position to have your heart wrung. And if any of you have been deeply hurt by someone that you love, you walk away going, I will never love again. I will never love again. And that's inherent in all of us. Every single one of us go, I'd rather choose lust, superficiality, over love, because I know if I love and I put myself out there, if my heart gets broken. By the way, do you realize that the only other person outside of heaven where love is totally, the only place outside of heaven where you'll never get hurt, where you'll never get hurt for loving something or someone is hell. Because in hell, there is no love. So deep down inside, we go, I choose lust over love. And I'll talk more about this next time because we're like, if I love enough, I'm going to get my heart absolutely broken. So I choose hardness. I'll choose superficial sex. I'll choose date versus love. How do we become able then? And I'll talk more about this again. Flesh this out. How do we choose love over lust? How do we, how do we overcome this temptation? I'm not going to tell you to go try harder. You know me. I'm not going to go home and go, pray a lot about it. What am I going to do? I'm going to point you to what? I'm going to point you to what? I'm going to point you to the cross. Because here's the reason. You ready? The degree to which you understand this, and the degree, oh, the degree to which you understand this, and I understand this, is the degree to which we will truly be able to love. Why? What do we see on the cross? On the cross, you see the true definition of love. Do you know what the cross says? The cross says love, true love, is about, listen, it's about giving and not taking. True love is about giving and not taking. True love, first and foremost, says, what can I give? What can I sacrifice? What can I lay down? Before it asks, what can I get? What can I receive? What can I have from me? True love, as demonstrated by the cross, embraces self-sacrifice, not self-gratification. True love, as demonstrated by the cross, truly shows us and it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if you're sitting there going, Peter, that still doesn't give me more motivation. I'll tell you why. True love is the only fulfilling thing that will ever satisfy the longing of your heart because the way God made us, 
The greatest pleasure that you and I will ever experience in life is not from getting pleasure. The greatest pleasure in all of life is what? The ability to give pleasure. If you are taking, 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 and you have never experienced the joy of giving, you will never know true joy. True love is two people who find true joy in one another's joy, not just in themselves. The most meaningful, significant relationship that will heal you, that will nurture you, is one in which two people are looking at each other and going, my greatest pleasure is knowing that I can give you pleasure. The greatest joy that I receive is when I see you joyful. Our world, look at that and go, is that even possible? Is it even possible for two people to go, my greatest pleasure in life is giving you pleasure, not getting, is giving you joy, not, is that even possible? In other words, the world is looking at you and me and going, are you any different? Are you any different? Are you and I any different? Are we any different? Has the kingdom and rule and reign of God made any difference to us? In a world where we dehumanize, we use people as commodities, we use and abuse, we discard relationships if they're no longer meeting my need, if you're not good enough for me. Is this kingdom community any different, any different, any different to the world out there?